If you would open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, we're rounding the corner here at the end of Ephesians. This is our uh, 15th week of a 16-week series as we're walking through this, uh, this letter from the Apostle Paul. Um, if 16 weeks feels like a slow brew to you, just bear in mind, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of the 20th century, took 26 weeks just for the three verses of Ephesians 6, 10, 11, 12, four verses, and 13. That was a 26-week series on the armor of God, so you're welcome. We're not doing it that way. Uh, and even when you dig further back into history, you have like William Gurnall and cats like that in 1662 wrote a 1,500-page volume uh, resource on the armor of God. 1,500 pages of exposition on 11 verses in the Bible. So we're not going to be that exhaustive this morning, um, thankfully, but all that just to say, Ephesians is one of those books where truth is so concentrated. Every line uh, could be an entire sermon. There's just so much here. So I hope and pray that we will be strengthened and encouraged in our time in God's Word as we read the famous spiritual armor text in Ephesians 6. If you would follow along, I'm going to start reading to us in verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes to see glorious things in your word and not just to see them, but to be changed by them. I pray that my friends here would hear a better message than the one that I preach. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would apply the truth to our hearts and lives in ways that bring about genuine, gospel-driven transformation for the glory of your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the most celebrated works on the subject of tactical warfare was written in 1854 by a French commander, a French general named Antoine Jomini. And the name of the book was A Summary of the Art of War. It wasn't much of a summary in my book. It was over 400 pages long that it took him to summarize the art of war. And it was raved about by all the military strategists of the time and heading into the time of the Civil War, of course, in 1861. So that was, it was a recent volume and everybody was talking about Jomini being like the most brilliant war strategist alive. And the question was put to the great commander, General Ulysses S. Grant. And they said, what are a penny for your thoughts on Jomini? work on tactical warfare, and Ulysses S. Grant was not as taken by the work of Jomini because he had worked with generals by that time, 
by the time the question was asked to him, he had worked with generals who had all this head knowledge, but he said, they don't know how to command troops on the field. They, they try to run field operations from Washington, D.C. He said, they don't know how to get on the field with the soldiers and command the troops to do the right thing and to get, to get the, the victory in battle. And so when they asked him the question, he said, here's, a, here's my summary of the art of war. He didn't, it's not going to take him 400 pages. He said, I'll give you four sentences. Here's my summary of the art of war. He said this, the art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is, get at him as soon as you can, strike at him as hard as you can and as often as you can, and keep moving on. He loved the simplicity of find the enemy, attack the enemy, give the enemy no rest until you're done with him. And then you move along. And I would submit to you that Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, we're going to look at the remaining verses next week, but Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is the Apostle Paul's summary of the art of war. He doesn't take 400 pages either. He says, I'll do it in about 200 words. This is how you win a battle. This is how God makes battle-ready believers. This is how God makes and outfits a battle-ready church. Because these words were not written to individual Christians. They were written to a congregation in the ancient city of Ephesus. So this is how, this is the making of a battle-ready church, if you will. This is the making of battle-ready Brook Hills in this text. So how does that happen? Three points. Imagine that. Three points in today's message. The first is this. The promise of strength. The promise of strength. Isn't that where the passage begins? So look down in verse 1, uh, rather verse 10, the beginning of our passage. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by, note those words, his vast Strength. Paul isn't suggesting that this strength uh, might not be available to you if you're a believer in Christ. He isn't saying, look, the strength is available to you while supplies last. No, this strength is vast. It is according to the vast might of God. In other words, this text right at the very beginning says, the strength that's on the offer is vast, incomprehensibly great strength, and it's on the offer for every believer in Jesus Christ. And the reason that we need that kind of vast strength becomes obvious when we keep reading the text. So if, if you ask the question, you're, you're reading Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and you ask the question, why did God put this in the Bible? An answer to that question comes gift-wrapped in two clauses that begin with the words, so that. That's gift wrap for the interpreter of Scripture. It says, I'm going to tell you exactly why I put this in Scripture. Look at verse 11. So that. Everything that's being said here is said so that you, believer in Christ, can stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. Here's that other gift wrapped so that phrase. So that. All that I'm saying right now, he says, I'm saying so that you may be able to Resist, that word resist, it has the word stand inside of it. It has two Greek words, anti and histamine. It's the word from which we get antihistamine. Stand against, it's withstand. So that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. That's what this text is about. This text wants to equip you with strength to stand in the evil day. Now you ask the question, what, what does he mean by the evil day? Interpreters have different opinions about this, but many of them land 
basically in saying that it doesn't seem to be that the evil day is pointing to kind of everything from the ascension of Jesus until the return of Jesus, kind of the last days. It's not just that in general. It also doesn't seem to be simply saying, hey, there's gonna be a time in the future gathering right around the return of Jesus where things are gonna get really bad, particularly evil days, get ready because that's when strength is coming. Well, that wouldn't really apply to that audience because they didn't see the return of Jesus. So maybe there's something else going on, and I think there is. It's one of my favorite living authors is a Scottish theologian named Sinclair Ferguson. And Ferguson says basically this. He says, think about, think about the days when you are facing your fiercest battle spiritually. A day in your life or season in your life where you're facing your fiercest battle. And he said, odds are that season of time or that day was a day when three things came together. Temptation, opportunity, and desire. So think about those three things. There might be entire seasons of your life as a Christian where those three don't align, right? Where there's temptation nearby or all around you, but you, for whatever reason, you don't have a strong desire to engage with that temptation. Or there might be other days where you have strong desire to engage with temptation, but there's not a real opportunity to get at it, right? But when temptation and opportunity, and internal desire, All when all those stars align, that's the evil day. That's, that's the perfect storm scenario, right? And Ephesians 6.10 is here from God, and he's saying, I want to give you strength, vast strength for that day. When the stars align, when temptation, opportunity, and desire line up in such a way as to create the perfect storm, and I want you to be able to stand. I want you to be able to withstand the heat and the winds of temptation, opportunity, and desire. And we need this strength because Paul makes it so clear in this text. The first point here is our enemy is formidable. Our enemy is formidable. Ephesians 6 is one of those passages, there are many in the Bible that do this, that installs a lens that only believers have. Only those who follow Jesus and trust his word have this lens installed that allows us to see the unseen world. Everybody else, right, we walk through life and, and you see what you get, right? What meets the eye is all that there is. Paul says, no, there's another lens. There's an unseen realm I want you to be aware of. And what's in the unseen realm? You see the unseen realm in verse 12. Rulers, authorities. This is not the JV team. This is formidable enemies. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, spiritual forces in the heavens. Friend, it's possible, even as a Christian, to live largely in kind of functional ignorance of the unseen threat of supernatural powers against, that are bent on your destruction, that are bent on the undermining of your faith in Jesus Christ, but they are there nevertheless. And to not see them and to not live consciously aware of them and their agenda is to live captive to them without even knowing it, we're captive to them because we're not living in any acknowledgement that there are forces that are too strong for us out there. And so we see this in the text, right? The formidable enemy, the devil, rulers, authorities, powers of darkness. And you see the next truth is this. He uses a wide range of tactics. Paul speaks of the uh, 
the schemes of the devil. It's a plural word. It's, it's the word from which we get the word methods, the methods of the devil, the tactics, stratagems of the enemy. And there were many of them, right? That got, our enemies that are bent on our destruction and the downfall of our faith, it's not, uh, it's not the fisherman with one lure, kind of just this, this one go-to and this is the one that catches all the fish. No, he's got many different lures for all kinds of different seasons of our life and states of our heart. I wonder how many of you have read C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters. All right, so a lot of people in the nine o'clock had read it as well. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. The, um, so here's what the book is about. It's, a, it's kind of a satire. C.S. Lewis, is, uh, he has the main character in the book is Screwtape. His name is Screwtape, and he's kind of this commanding general, ranking general among demons. He's been doing it for a long time. He's caused a lot of people to fall and, and to succumb to temptation. And, but this, this general is teaching and training his nephew, his young this young demon who doesn't really know the ropes, doesn't know how to tempt effectively. And so his uncle, and he, he kind of ends all of his letters to his nephew, Wormwood, he ends, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And so he's writing these letters and he's saying, here's how you get the job done. Here's how you tempt your subject, your patient. Here's how you bring them down. And the benefit of reading the book is you start to see um, the vast array of lures that the enemy uses to bring us down, and it, it shows how he capitalizes not just on our pain and our suffering, but he capitalizes on our prosperity, he capitalizes on our success. Um, you start to see when you read the book that Satan isn't just about kind of fueling the skepticism of atheists, but he's, he's fueling the moralism of churchgoers. He's involved in all of this and he's leveraging it to his ends. And the book kind of shows how spiritual warfare is a matter of everyday life. Like we're doing spiritual warfare and spiritual battle. On any given Tuesday, we are under attack. In the normal rhythms of life, we're under attack. Speaking of normal rhythms, what's the background of this text? Like this, this text has a context. You back up from our text and you don't see pagan people in Ephesus having seances and Ouija boards, right? The, the background of this text, what came right before this passage is what? Marriage, parenting, life at the office. Earlier, it's like, how do you relate to people in the church who have different opinions or come from different cultures, Jews and Gentiles trying to get along? Forbearance and anger and unforgiveness, all of that stuff. It's just in the normal world. Ephesians is in the normal world, and that's what, that's what this text grows out of, the normal world world, the way in which Satan, his main role isn't just, hey, I do possession, like that's what I do, I do possession, you're going to need an exorcism to get me out, I do, I, I come in, I move in, I flip your head backwards, like that's the thing that I do, that's my signature move. No, uh, he distracts us with entertainment, he numbs us with just a busy life, right? He comes and whispers discouragement into our ears. He makes godliness look really weird. He makes unrighteousness look really cool, really authentic, right? That's, that's the kinds of things. The everyday battles that we face are those kinds of battles. One of the things that becomes so clear in Ephesians is Christianity isn't a makeover. It's a resurrection. That's why Eugene Peterson's great book, 
more recently is uh, practicing resurrection. And he's writing it about, about the church at Ephesus. This is what they're doing. They're practicing resurrection. They're coming alive to God. That's why they keep talking about put off your old life. That's not you anymore. Now you're alive to God. Practice resurrection. That's what's going on in Ephesians all throughout this book. And here in Ephesians 6, after a couple of chapters of just this pile on of commands in all the everyday areas of our lives, commands that we could never pull off in our own strength. And Paul pulls up alongside in Ephesians chapter 6 with strength from another world. And that's why verse 10 starts the way that it does. Be strengthened by the Lord. That's a great translation. The Christian Standard Bible translates it very technically because it's not a straightforward imperative. The verb there is a passive imperative. It's be strengthened. It's get strength from outside. Get resources from the Lord God who has vast strength for his people. So it's a promise of strength. Number two, provisions for battle. The provisions for battle. God has not left us as believers without armor for the spiritual battle that we are in. Look at the words there. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand. So we're, we're going to move through this. We're not going to take every element of armor one by one. We're going to group them under a few different headings. So the first is this. It's a call to love the truth. It's a call to love the truth. He says, put on the belt of truth. So we know that the whole Bible is true. The Bible is inerrant. The Bible is infallible. The Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is sufficient. We're convinced of that, right? And we're gonna come to the Bible in just a moment when we look at the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we'll come back to that. But the Bible itself has a central message, has a primary message, what the Apostle Paul calls the message of first importance. And that message centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where the Bible fixates its attention. Jesus talked about the Pharisees and he said, it's great that you read the Bible, but here's the thing. You search the scriptures thinking that in them you have life, but you refuse to come to me. That's, that's the wrong way that you're reading the Bible. If you read the Bible right, you'd see the scripture's pointing in my direction and you'd come to me for life. So they refused to come to the central truth himself. Jesus didn't come like the other religious teachers and say, I have a truth, I have some principles, get out a pen and a notebook, write it down, it's gonna help you live. Jesus said, look, I'm the truth. I myself am the embodiment. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, the truth, friends, is the message of the gospel centered on Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, if I'm gonna summarize my preaching, he said, all we preached was Christ and him crucified. Everything we said was related to the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And for the apostles, when you read the New Testament, to shift away from the truth that centers on Jesus to moralism is to lose the ball game. It's to lose, read Galatians. That's Paul saying, wait, well, how come you started trusting in the grace of God and justification by faith alone? And then, and then it went to your head and you thought, this is all up to me. You thought you'd be perfected by your own works. And he said, you've, you've fallen from grace. That's the truth that we see here. I love, I love when the apostles, when they use this phrase, 
um, they'll say, this saying is trustworthy. Jesus would say similar things. He would say, verily, verily is the old school translation. Truly, truly, I say to you. And that's God saying, double underline this. I need you to lean forward and listen particularly. And when the apostles are writing, they'll say, this saying is trustworthy. Lean in. This is really, really important. I want to read to you one of those trustworthy sayings from Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 8. And you'll see it centers on the gospel. This is the truth with a capital T. Paul says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us unilaterally, right? Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And then he says, this saying is trustworthy. That's him saying, we gather around this. We lose this, we're gone. We lose this, we lose the whole ball game. And in that way, Think about this and bear this in mind. When the church keeps the gospel the main thing, when the church keeps the main thing the main thing, that's the church belting itself in the truth. That's, that's the dynamic that's at play there. So let me, let me ask you, when you read the Bible personally, individually, as a follower of Jesus, what are you hoping to take away from that passage that's on your lap? What's your main desire? If you want something from that passage more than greater esteem for Jesus Christ, greater trust in Jesus Christ, a greater desire to see him as the supreme Lord over your life, to hand him the keys with more eagerness, then we got our priorities out of whack. The Bible is there to present to us a compelling Christ more than anything else. It's not life tips, right? Why do we as a church spend 16 weeks in a theologically dense letter like Ephesians, after which we spend 16 weeks in a theologically dense book like the Gospel of John, right? We, we do that because we want, all of us, we want to feel the rock of the Gospel underneath our feet so that we can stand in the evil day. We need a rock beneath our feet. Something else isn't going to cut it, right? When the, when the evil day comes, when all those stars align and the perfect storm shows up in your life and as the hymn writer said, all around your soul gives way and the enemy's talking smack in your ear and he's slandering the character of God and you're starting to believe some of it. Reading the Bible for life tips isn't going to cut it. Self-help, girl wash your face theology isn't going to cut it. You're going to need God to stand all the way up. You're going to need a God-sized God of Ephesians 1 to 3. You're going to need the seven I am statements of the gospel of John ringing in your ears and enabling you to stand. In a word, your trembling soul is going to need to strap on a belt. (laughs) And that belt is the belt of gospel. It's the belt of truth. So it's a call to love the truth. Next, it's a call to fight sin. Paul says, put on righteousness as armor for your chest. Put on righteousness as armor for your chest. So is he talking about 
lingering and meditating on the imputed righteousness of Jesus that's given to everyone by faith. When we believe in Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness is credited to my account and it stands me as holy in the sight of God so I can come boldly before him, right? Is it that righteousness or are we talking about, is he talking about the righteousness that the Holy Spirit produces in the life of the believer day by day, day by day as he sanctifies us and makes us new? I don't think we have to choose between the two because you asked the question, in the fight against sin, what do you need? You need confidence in the cross of Jesus Christ and you need a confidence in the endless power of the Holy Spirit, which is yours as a believer to fight against sin. You need both of those. The, the old Reformation battle axe, Martin Luther in the 16th century, he said, he said this, I love it. He said, you should tell the devil. Then he gives you a transcript. Here's what you should say next time he comes calling. You should tell the devil, just by telling me that I'm a great sinner, you are placing a weapon into my hand with which I can decisively overcome you. For when you tell me I am a poor sinner, I can tell you that Christ died for sinners and is their intercessor. In this way, you have only reminded me of the great faithfulness of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The burden of my sins and all the trouble that was to oppress me eternally, he very gladly took upon his shoulders and suffered the bitter death on the cross for them. To him I direct you, let me rest in peace, for on his shoulders, not on mine, lie all my sins. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like you strapping on a breastplate, holding on to the truth, the central truth of the gospel. It's called the fight sin. Next. It's a call to advance the gospel in the world. To advance the gospel in the world. He, he uses that language there, you see. And your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Paul, in just a moment, Paul's gonna say, I need you to pray for me, church. I need you to pray for me that I would speak the gospel and proclaim the gospel message with boldness. Everywhere I go, I want the gospel to run fast and furious through every town I get to. And I don't wanna hold back in speaking it boldly. He's asking for strength in that way. Christian friend, there are people around you this week in your everyday life who need to experience and find hope in Jesus Christ. He is the only hope of the world and they're right around you and they're around you for a reason. They're around me for a reason so that we might boldly proclaim, so that we might sandal up with readiness of the gospel of peace. I've got it, you need it, let's talk, right? And then not only that, not only in our everyday life right here in the city where you live and where you work, but around the world, right? We as a church, we, we keep in our minds the focus of there are people, billions of people who have never heard this gospel, never heard the hope we've been singing about all morning and reveling in. They never even heard it. They don't even know Jesus' name and they're not gonna know it unless the church sandals up with readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace. That's why we love to pray and to give and to go. That's why every time we commission someone out from here to go and, and send, that's not just them strapping on the sandals. That's the church at Brook Hills sandaling up with a passion for the mission and the advancement of the gospel of Christ around the world. That's us suiting up, putting our armor on. Next point, it's a call to cling to God's word. It's a call to cling to God's word. So we need, we need a sword, a shield, and a helmet. And really, you think about 
the function of God's word as it's revealed in scripture and, and scripture actually functions in all those kinds of ways. It is our helmet. We are renewed. Our minds are renewed by God's word. God's promises guard our hearts and minds in Christ. We need that helmet. We put on the helmet. We need the shield. The sh- God's word fortifies our faith, right? It catches the arrows of the enemy, the arrows of doubt and discouragement. It keeps the enemy's lies from hitting our vital organs, right? We need that. So we need the helmet. We need the shield. We need the sword. Paul says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In this particular case, he tells you exactly what the sword represents. It's scripture. It's God's word. That's how we do battle with God's word. You may remember young David in the, in the Old Testament, and David, he hears Goliath out there on the field calling out and jeering against God and against God's people. And he says, how come, how come somebody won't shut this guy up? And he says, I'm, I'm ready. And he goes, and, and Saul says, okay, you, you want to go, go out there and do that? I need you to, I need to give you my armor, right? And so he says, I've got this. This is the finest armor in all of Israel. I'm gonna, so I'm going to outfit you in my armor. And he puts him in the armor, and what happens? David can't move. The armor's too big, it's unwieldy, it's cumbersome. He can't can't get around. He's like, I fight better without the armor than I would with the armor. Well, the armor wasn't gonna fit. In this particular case, the one who's preparing us to go out for battle, spiritual battle, is God himself. And the Holy Spirit's the one who says, this sword works, it's actually mine. That's why Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, this is the Spirit's sword. He's used this before. This is a really good, you won't find a better sword than the one I myself have been using, the Holy Spirit says. So we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Friends, never underestimate the transforming power of the Word of God in your life. You need the sword. Now, one more thing, um, because I think this is pretty easy to miss. So think about it for a second. The Apostle Paul was a man thoroughly versed in Scripture. He, he, was, he was trained in rabbinical school. He was a Hebrew scholar. So he knew the, the Old Testament backwards and forwards. So we shouldn't be surprised if the Apostle Paul, in his writing in the New Testament, is constantly thinking about and drawing from things that are in the Old Testament. I don't think that the Apostle Paul you know, wrote Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 20, you know, because he looked around one day and he saw a Roman guard in his armor and he said, that'll preach. Like, I can, I can create spiritual lessons from all the things the Roman guard is wearing. I think, I think there's more than that. And when you go back into the Old Testament and you look at the book of Isaiah, you see the very kind of language that Paul is using here because in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, God says, I'm, I'm done because you people are so idolatrous and I send leader after leader and all of them are failing to obey me and to follow me and you're entrenched in idolatry. And he says, I'm just gonna come myself. And notice what God is wearing when he comes. Isaiah 59, 16 and 17. The Lord saw that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He, that is the Lord, put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal 
as a cloak. And that's not all. It's not just Isaiah 59. It's Isaiah 52, where God himself is sandaling up with the, the readiness to proclaim the message of peace and good news to those in darkness. God himself in Isaiah chapter 11, it says, the Lord will execute justice for the oppressed. Righteousness will be a belt around his waist. The Lord wears the belt of righteousness. Do you see what's happening? God wore the belt. He wore it first and best. God wore the breastplate. He wore the helmet of salvation. He wore the sandals. No wonder Paul says, put on the full armor of God. He's not simply saying, put on the armor that God has provided. He's saying, put on the armor. God wore it. He wore it first. He wore it best. The Lord is giving you his own weaponry. He's not sending you flailing into battle without the resources that you need. He says, this is the best stuff you can find. It's my own, and I'm giving it to my people to ready you for battle. And in that way, you just think about how Ephesians 6, again, like every other text in the Bible, points us to Jesus. Jesus, the one who sandaled up to proclaim peace to a world in darkness. Jesus, who spoke belted himself with truth. Jesus who now, at God's right hand, shields us from the accusations of the enemy. Jesus who rules and defends all of those who are his. Jesus is, as the psalmist said, Jesus, the Lord is our strength. He himself, he is our shelter. He is our deliverer. And maybe you've never believed in this Jesus. Maybe you've never truly responded to the message of the gospel. Friend, today is the day. Repent and believe. Say goodbye to your old life. Experience forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Be brought into his eternal forever family. That's what the gospel calls us to. It invites us into this new life and then it starts saying, practice resurrection. You're not what you were before. You have power you didn't have before. Be done with your old life and come alive in Christ today. That's what this Ephesians is saying. In every word it's saying that. And what happens when you believe, when you repent and you put your trust in Jesus, what happens? God effectively says to you, it's not gonna be easy, I'm promising you that. I'm gonna be with you, I promise you that. And I'm gonna put this armor on you. How much of it do I put on? All of it. When do I take it off? Never. You take it off, it comes off of you when you cross the finish line. It comes, comes off of you the day you die. Until then, it's wartime. Until then, you fight in a spiritual battle with this armor on. It's a promise of strength, provisions for battle, and finally, the posture of the believer. What's the posture of the believer? It's a call to stand and keep standing. You know, if you think about it, the, the metaphor of standing doesn't really feature you and me as doing a whole lot of conquering. You're standing. And there's something to be said about that. I love what uh, commentator Andrew Lincoln said. He said, the decisive victory has already been won by God in Christ. And the task of believers is not to win, but to stand. That is, to preserve and maintain what has been won. That's standing, preserving and maintaining what has been won. I, I spoke on the phone this week with um, 
Dean Demas is a man who discipled me when I was in college. I practically lived with him and his wife, Patty, and their two younger children, Jeffrey and Ashley. And Dean taught me how to pray the Psalms. He invited me to meet with him in the music building every morning at 6 a.m. and we prayed the Psalms together. And he, he just radiated joy in Jesus, still does all these years later. He radiates joy in Jesus. And we're just kept catching up on life. And he was telling me about his wife and, and all that's going on in their lives. He's telling me about Jeffrey and Ashley. And he leaned in particularly with Ashley and he said, Matt, you should see her faith. Right, she was probably seven years old when I saw her last. He said, you should see her face. She has such a passion for Jesus. And he, he said that there's a particular outlet for that passion. He said, she, um, she so desires for Jesus to rewrite the script in the story of women who are survivors of sex trafficking. And he says, she is all in. And in everything that he said to me, in a word, what Dean was saying, and you could hear the joy coming through the phone, he was essentially saying, Matt, she's standing. You should see my girl standing. She, she is taking it to the teeth of the enemy. She is bold. She is passionate. She is not for sale. She is not compromising. She is for Christ, and it's awesome to see my girl stand. And then he turns around and he says, all right, enough about us. Tell me about the Masons. And he says, tell me about Paula. How's Paula? He says, tell me about Hunter. Tell me about Will. Tell me about Ellie. He's kept up with our kids and our family over the years. He wanted to know all the stuff. He asked about all the everyday stuff of volleyball and college and all, all the rest. But in essence, the thrust of most of his questions were, Matt, Tell me they're standing. Tell me they're standing with Christ. Tell me they're worshipers of Jesus. The art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is. Get at him as soon as you can. Strike at him as hard as you can and as often as you can and keep moving on. You know, I think about, as even as I read this text, I think about brothers and sisters who have gone on to be with the Lord, who are cheering us on, a cloud of witnesses from, from the finish tape, right? And they're cheering us on. And what, what would they be saying? It's not hard for me to imagine what they would be saying. They would be saying, keep standing. Don't give the enemy any ground, zero ground, we take ground. We lose no ground. We take more ground. That's, that's what we do. Stand and keep standing. Hold on. They'd be shouting. Hold on to the word of Christ. Cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. Lean on the power of Christ. Run to the world with the gospel of Christ. That's, that's the church sandaling up, breastplate, helmet, sword, shield, engaged, standing for Christ. May we be that kind of church.